there's definitely a dynamic uh, when it comes to uh, family-run business and then, of course, family-run business in, in, in the trades because oftentimes the first generation came up from within the trade, from within being a service technician or within being a, a, someone that turned the wrenches in the field. And, of course, as they evolve, you know, it, it's hard to say what kind of business acumen they possess and experience and knowledge and, and, and education. And all those variables play a huge role in how that company is going to be run and the vision for that organization. You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today, we're talking sales with Darius Livers, Chief Operating Officer at FH Fur Plumbing, Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical in Northern Virginia, which is pacing to hit $75 million in revenue this year. I chatted with Darius about his passion for sales and problem solving, how to create a healthy work culture at a family-owned business, how to train comfort advisors in the growth mindset, and so much more. Honestly, Darius's 20-year journey from a sales consultant to COO is a fascinating one, filled with tons of knowledge for contractors at every stage of their business. To find out more about Darius, head on over to servicetitan.com slash podcast. Enjoy. Darius Livers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Um, for those listening at home who may not be familiar with you, can you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Uh, my name is Darius Livers. work with uh, FH Fur Plumbing, Heating, Air Conditioning, Electrical here in uh, Northern Virginia, Metropolitan D.C. area. Nice. And can you tell us how you got into the trades? That is an interesting uh, story, as many of us fall into the trades for various reasons, and very few of us actually go to school to, to get into the trades. So I was actually uh, in school, and uh, I had a good friend that uh, his parents owned a uh, HVAC company out in, uh, in, the, in the Tidewater area, Virginia Beach area. And um, he was uh, going to inherit the organization from his, uh, from his family in, in the upcoming years at the time. Uh, he wanted to get in with me, and I had some uh, financial backing. So I was, uh, I was, I wanted to go into business. I had uh, the business acumen and really was had a desire to get into into some form of a business. He's like, hey, let, let let's do this. Come learn the business with me. So I actually went and uh, worked for his company, for his parents' company, and started doing different things, installation, a little bit of service, but primarily inside sales to get the experience that I needed. So, you know, when we decided to take the company over, you know, we had a little bit of backing, but it didn't go as, as we had planned. He had a fallout with his family and uh, the family ended up selling the company off to some other investors. And I was in the industry. I was uh, committed and uh, I've been in the industry ever since. That's you know. a really fascinating story. How old were you when you first got involved? This was when I was about 21. Yeah, gotcha. so I was uh, just coming out of school. I, I hadn't graduated out of school. I actually dropped out, uh, unfortunately and fortunately, because it gave me a, a different path. And quite frankly, I've never really had any, any regrets. So uh, it worked out very well in the end, because I do believe if I had uh, gotten into the business at that time as an owner, I don't think I would have had the experience necessary to have uh, been successful, you know, had I gone into business, you know, later, a little bit later and had a little more experience underneath my belt. So I think all in all, the, it, things happen for a reason. And certainly in this particular case, case, not going into the business, I think was probably the best thing for me at the time. Gotcha. I love that you're East Coast because you talk just as fast as I do. Um, Great. So uh, you mentioned that, you know, you, you didn't finish school, totally justifiable. A lot of very successful business people don't. And you mentioned that you knew you wanted to get started in business, but you had no idea. You just kind of fell into the trades. When you were first looking for that opportunity, where did you originally envision yourself? Wow. I mean, the whole thing, the whole concept of, uh, you know, working for myself and, and being able to have the flexibility and, you know, making the sky the limit was all intriguing to me at the time. So I really didn't know exactly where I was going to land as much as I, I knew I had a, a, a goal in, in mind. And, you know, so I, I was approaching it to try to learn a little bit about everything with the trade, you know, whether it's in the office, answering phones, uh, a little bit of sales, a little bit of service, a little bit of install. And it was all HVAC related. And, um, 
it just happened to be that I found a natural kind of, uh, of evolved in, in, in the sales side of things, and I was uh, very successful at it on an inside sales. So I was basically calling behind a lot of the uh, consultants would go out, give estimates, and then you know anything that they didn't convert or sell, I found a position within the company where they would put those on my desk. I ended up calling those, having a lot of success selling the jobs that other people couldn't sell, and uh, then it just took off from there. And I just found that uh, that uh, you know I had a natural gift of of being. Able able to, to convert those jobs. So I did that for about a year and a half and then relocated up to the Northern Virginia area and then found myself looking, looking for a job in the industry because at that point I was, I was heavily invested a couple years into the, uh, into the trades. Yeah. So just to recap, while you were working for your friend's family business that unfortunately it sounds like had a falling out, you really got the knack of the sales side of things. That's really where your brain lit up and you're like, oh, I'm good at this and I like doing this and this is now where I want to continue to take my career. Absolutely. I mean, there was no question I felt comfortable with it. Naturally, it came with some sense of a risk. But then again, I, I kind of liked that. And that, that little element of not being successful doing it kind of kept me going to prove that I could. And then I felt like, oh, wow, I can actually make, uh, make money doing this. And uh, so, yeah, when I came up to uh, Northern Virginia, I really, I really felt like uh, that's where I needed to be at the time. Certainly, I didn't have the college degree to fall back on. So, you know, it was a little more competitive in the other areas or other industries. So, it felt right in and, and kind of felt comfortable for me. As someone who has a college degree, I truly don't feel like I can fall back on it. So I don't think you're missing out. <laughs> I don't think anyone uses their college degree. I've mentioned it on a couple interviews already, but my degree's in neuropsychology, which wow. I mean, with interviewing and with learning about and creating content for men and women in the trades, it's, it's helpful to kind of be empathetic and to kind of know how the brain works. But I, I'm not going to grad school, man. Like I'm not taking on that debt. Um, before we go into you going to FH Fur and kind of taking on that sales role, and I also want to learn a little bit more about what differentiated you from other salespeople, but I would love to learn to know what it was like to be working for a business that kind of, it sounds like had a pretty nasty fallout. Yeah, that, uh, that taught me a lot when it came down to it, as, as most family businesses, you know, there, there, it comes with challenges. And uh, it actually set a good platform for where I am today because I got to see a medium-sized uh, family company where there was a lot of family feud as to who was not carrying their weight, who shouldn't be there, who shouldn't be there, who should be making the decisions, who shouldn't be making the decisions. So there, there, was, there was a lot of that going on. So naturally, I was able to stand back from that and observe more than anything because I wasn't part of those, uh, in, you know, within those conversations and but from viewing it from the outside in, I really got a good feel for, wow, if I ever was part of a, another family business, I'm going to be aware of these things and certainly make sure that those things are kept into mind or at least put into place to where moving forward, we won't have as many problems. So it gave me that, that, that platform by which to see what I didn't want to do or what I didn't want to be involved in. And ironically, when I moved up to Northern Virginia, I ended up working for another family-run HVAC company, but I knew what to look for in, in the, during those interviews and, and, and what not to look for and, you know, who was in charge, is there a second generation involved, how close are we to that second generation coming into play, and those type of things. So there's definitely a dynamic uh, when it comes to uh, family-run business and then, of course, family-run business in, in, in the trades because oftentimes the first generation came up from within the trade, from within being a service technician or within being a, a, someone that turned the wrenches in the field. And, of course, as they evolve, you know, it, it's hard to say what kind of business acumen they possess and experience and knowledge and, and, and education and all those variables play a huge role in how that company is going to be run and the vision for that organization. So for me, I, was, I knew what I was looking for uh, by then to some degree, and I was very fortunate that the, the, the company I did choose to work for, which, which ended up being FHFAR, is the only place I've been ever since. So uh, you know, I didn't have to bounce around, so I, I really could get, uh, get my feet set, and, and, uh, and it's been an extremely uh, prosperous journey for me. That's really great. And I've, I've been asking this question a lot because the trades is filled with family-owned businesses. 
And, you know, you hear stories like the one you said, which is, you know, there was a nasty fallout, the family like stopped talking to each other. But you then on the other side of the coin, you see businesses like FH Fur, like Ruder Hero Plumbing, which I interviewed the other day, who have a a husband and wife duo at the top who have the second generation. I interviewed Peterman, who who had a second generation coming in. And the one common thread that when I asked them, how do you run a successful business with your family? They said is to have very descriptive job descriptions. So everyone is crystal clear on this is your responsibility. This is mine. And everyone buys into the process of keeping each other accountable. Is that one of the things you were looking for as you were seeking for another business when you moved up to Northern Virginia? No question. Uh, Defined roles is critical in any business, but even more importantly in family business, because you not only have, do you have the family members that may feel entitled to certain privileges and quite frankly, may not have earned their way into those positions, but where that becomes critical is the perception by the people around them, right? All the other employees in the company that feel, Hey, that, that, that family member is there because they're family, not because they deserved it, not because they've earned it, not because they know what they're doing, not because they're accountable. And so you have to deal with that perception with people. And in a position like myself, my position that I'm in now at my company, uh, that is a reality that I deal with all the time. It, it just is, it is what it is. But the, the groundworks were set a long time ago for me as to understanding that element and understanding it because I've always been on the outside looking in and having that same perception. It makes it very easy for me to relate to the people to then generalize and, and, and address whatever their thoughts may be as it's happening and really, really build around it and, and lift it rather than stand behind closed doors doors and, uh, you know, talk about it. So we address that. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, going into is, is you have to be very transparent with things uh, when it involves between family and non-family, because the last thing you want is your culture to suffer because everybody around the family feels like, you know, that there's this sort of nucleus. And, I, and the best way I could describe it is if you to take a, an atom, what have you, and, you know, you've got the outskirts of that, you have all of your, your, your regular employees. And as you get closer to the nucleus, you have more family extensions and family members and the family members are protected within the center, which can only go bad if everything on the outside gets zapped out first. So when, when you have that dynamic where everything is outside in, it makes it very hard to, to, to build a good, strong foundation or a culture in the company. But I have found ways to certainly uh, bring that together to where the people within the organization don't necessarily feel that way. And it's, it's a lot of work, and it's certainly something that you have to ha- tackle head on every day and not allow anything to foster on the sidelines. You have to address things as they happen, especially when it comes to family run and, and whether or not the family deserves and whether or not the family should. Those are not necessarily uh, up for discussion as much as it is holding everybody accountable at the same level. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really great to think about it. Um, and I actually missed what exactly your meta. I got your metaphor, but I missed the part where it's uh, where you described what it was. Can you just say you said it's a you said it's a nucleus, and on the outside, did you describe it as a cell? Well, you look at like a cell, like like an atom, and, and you know you you you've sure. got your nucleus in the center, right? So yes. as you get closer to the center, you're getting closer and closer to the family, right? So the family holds in the center, they're like they're the core of the business. And if you start looking at every layer on the outside of that nucleus, meaning you know as you go further and further away from the family, meaning you're not you're not a friend of the family, or you don't attend attend maybe the family church, or you're not a family uh, relative or what have you, you go further and further out, right? So if everyone feels feels like as you get closer to the center, closer to the family, you're more protected. But the further you're away, the more you're not protected. And the more you have to have accountability on the outside, but you don't have the accountability on the inside, there's a bit of disparity and those layers can get extremely thick. So the trick of, of it naturally, or not the trick, but what I have found to be successful is to not allow that nucleus to grow too strong in the perception of the people, but rather everybody can be anywhere within that cell or within that atom so that everybody is accountable to the same measures. And it's difficult, but it can be done. Yeah. And I, uh, you touched upon something earlier that I thought uh, was really important too. It's, it's the culture. Because if you also bring in family and there's some underlying family issues, I can imagine in a family-owned business, those issues that may have nothing to do with business bleed into the culture. Like if you are working with a family, I would imagine in the center where there's issues going on, on underneath the surface, ex- employees that aren't a part of that nucleus can feel that and that permeates through the culture and c- can create a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, I would imagine. 
Oh, there's there's no question. And quite frankly, and, and, and with, with what we just talked about, the size of the company and the number of employees really plays a big role because as you grow and as there's more moving parts with all of this, it gets harder and harder and harder to keep it all together. You know, if you have a seven to 10 employee company, it's a lot different than a 300 plus employee company. And I had the privilege of watching the company grow from 65 employees to 330. So I watch how these layers actually change and how people can feel further and further and further from the nucleus, given that you're growing and growing and growing. And trying to keep that close by has been in the ultimate challenge. But certainly through different events, through different exercises, through different, through enge- different engagements, things can maintain. And we have found a way to do that at, uh, at FH First. So it's been, it's been a wonderful ride because as much as there's just challenges, it's a, so fulfilling to overcome those challenges, right? So, and making it work where so many other companies have not been able to, to make that where second generation comes in, which is what our company is. We're a second generation run company now. We're so often the not second generation don't, are not as successful as first generation and sometimes fail outright. We're finding ways to get better and grow and evolve with the second generation as well as the first generation, which has been very promising and certainly a, a great thing to be a part of. That's wonderful. And we're deviating a little bit from my traditional script, but I I think this is a fascinating topic. So what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome at FHFER as the chief chief operating officer as the second generation came in? And so what were the challenges that presented themselves and how did you guys overcome them? Wow. So that is, uh, that, that is a multi, um, there are a lot of different things that, that went into that. So I'll start by, by, by saying that it was very important for us to define the roles, who was responsible for what. Certainly, and these are hard conversations, but if there were operational critical roles that were being held within family members that maybe the perception was that they weren't holding their own or, or, or being held accountable to those measures, slowly but surely shedding those roles and putting them in to different positions within the organization. You certainly don't want to have too many roles on any individual family member that maybe affects multiple groups or a good percentage or high percentage of, of your people. So you're limiting your exposure that way. Right? So taking some of the critical roles that you see maybe better suited with putting in with, with different people that you can hold more accountable and even having that hard, hard conversation with that family member. Listen, we have to be able to hold the person in charge of this fully accountable to those actions, which means that up to the point in which the, their position or their role can be terminated. That's the ultimate accountability, right, is that you can be terminated if you don't do what you're supposed to be doing. Certain roles within the company have to have that ultimate accountability for them to function effectively, or at least from the perception of people for it to function effectively. So having those hard conversations with families that this is not about whether or not I believe you can do it or not as much as it is the perception of the people is that if someone in th- that has this role isn't doing it that ultimately they won't be doing it right and so having those discussions and actually going through that in an open arena really helped us we were able to then move some of these these core responsibilities and putting them on individuals that were not related to the family which means they're much more expendable uh, the role is let's uh, let's, uh, let's just say and therefore the kind of be a good measure. And so you, you move that around, you, you, you identify what those are, slowly but surely over time you, you get those moved around. You certainly don't ever allow the family to not be involved in all the decisions. That's the last thing you want to do. It is important. They're the owners. They need to be in the loop. So you have a very open communication around that. Always be on, on top of that. But the most important thing of, of all of it, besides the roles, was always letting the ownership, the, 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 the family know that large decisions are never going to be made without your involvement and trust in the people and a trust in myself, you know, being in the position that, I, that I'm running operations and, I, and I'm going to do the right thing for the, for the company, that we're going to pass your vision and communicate at all levels so that your vision will still be able to be relayed to the people and we can exercise on that without you having to be directly involved in every single thing, right? Because a lot of first and second generation, a lot of family, they, they, they feel like they need to be involved in all the decisions. So they they end up in the weeds a lot, which doesn't enable them to help grow the company, but rather they create a barrier to the company's growth or the company's prosperous uh, ability to be prosperous. So, you know, once you get them get get them out of the weeds a little bit, which it tends to because they were turning wrenches at one time, a lot of them, right? So they they have been in 
every facet of the business, and they like to be there. They, they, you know, and, and quite often they can do it better than anybody else. That's just a reality of the situation. But they're, they're much more effective if they allow the people to run the people. So I'm always, when I'm dealing with the, with the, with the people, non, non-family members, I will address them, hey, we all know that I'm not part of the family. We all know that my job is just like yours as far as, you know, my security within the organization, right? I have to earn my job every single day, right? And then through me respecting the family's values and respecting what the family does, it starts to trickle down to everybody else because they're going to start acting as, as you're acting. So we're able to set the roles. We're able to be very transparent on a communication level with, with upper management, with the ownership, with the family, translating the, what their beliefs are through the, the company, getting, gaining the trust within, within the company, and really getting the majority, certainly not all, but certainly the majority of our people understanding that everyone has their roles within the company and all the critical roles from a daily operational standpoint are run primarily by the, the employees of the company. And it's been, we have our challenges, don't get me wrong, but all in all, it's working. We've got a pretty strong culture at the company, and we don't have that resentment built up. We don't have those pockets. I'm sure there's some small talk, but you know, where, where is that not going to happen, right? It's going to happen in any business regardless. So it's there, but we, we talk about it, and we talk about it openly. That's wonderful information. Um, and I found that what really struck out to me, too, was it sounded like taking as families as families start a business and as that business grows, the people who started it probably have definitely have a lot of ownership over the functions of the business. So as they grow, instead of delegating, they tend to just pile onto their own plates. And it sounds like a lot of the work you did was to remove some of that load from the core family members and delegating them to the employees within the company who could properly do that job. And so this way, the family wasn't that nucleus that kind of held all the power. And instead, you distributed it across the organization. Is, is, that, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that, that is correct. And, and doing that systematically to where, you know, nothing moves too quick or to feel like, hey, maybe we're not making a good decision, but also speaking to the point where, hey, not every decision is going to be good. We're going to make some mistakes. I just need you to trust me, right? And building that trust over time, not just with myself, but with the decisions that are being made throughout, right? Because once, once they feel like the best interests of the organization are being, you know, at, our, at heart and, and people are working towards making this the best place that it can be, we found that, you know, the gloves come off. A lot more uh, empowerment occurs. Once you start empowering everybody and to make decisions, uh, great things start happening. And that's really where we've been. And, 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 and it's really been a, an amazing journey. And, and the challenge of, of it being with the family just makes it that much better. It really does, right? It just, the whole dynamic, you've got to balance that out. You've really got to find a way to come together, just like with them being family family, like biological family, and, and us being the FH Fur family, we're still all the same family. Every day we come in here, we're all brothers and sisters and, fr- and friends and, and parents and what have you. So we look at it like that and it really, it really works. And quite frankly, as long as everyone knows what that role is and what they're supposed to be doing and, 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 they're, and they're held accountable to that role, there really isn't anything much else to be said, right? You, you come in, you get your job done, you have fun doing it, and you share in the success. And, and uh, we've been fortunate to have success. It makes it a lot easier. Uh, naturally, if, uh, if we weren't as successful as a company, uh, that may not be the case. But I, I attribute a lot of the, the hard work and the fact that we're working together to why, we, why we're seeing success. Yes. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah, you're definitely echoing a lot of the common threads that I'm talking, mostly in this first season of the podcast, I'm talking with businesses that have achieved an incredible level of success. And one common thread is that every leader I've spoken to is like, I empower my people. I allow them to do their job. I give them definite goals. I give them def- like clear and con- a clear job description so they know what they're accountable for. They know what they have to do. And I let them do their job. And that really Absolutely. seems to be the difference between companies companies that are in that small and are not small, but are maybe just beginning and companies that have now achieved astronomical growth. And you said yourself, you guys have grown from 65 to 330 employees. Like that's incredible. So that's great. And how long have you been with FH for now? This December will be my 20th year. Yeah. So this is uh, 20 years uh, coming up. Wow. That's not very common. That's not very common anymore. That's incredible. How does that make you feel? 
uh, feels great because I've played a, diff- a bunch of different roles. Um, I've watched a lot of people grow in the company, people that have been here alongside with me the whole way. And just watching the, the, the you know, it, when I first came to the company, the children were, were still in, in school. They're, they're several years younger than I am. So I watched them go to college uh, while I was slaving away <laughs> for the company. And, and uh, they would come during summers and they'd start learning. And, and uh, it's ironic that the, 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 the owner's son, the second generation, he basically, uh, he's my supervisor now. He's my direct. And, and he's our CEO. And uh, so the owner's son used to be an installer. And uh, I'd go out and I, and I was in, in outside sales when I first came to FH Fern. I would sell jobs and, you know, I'd know that a certain job is, is, is not the greatest job, tight attic, really hot. You know, you straddle joists to get to the unit, all this stuff. And then I would see that job getting, uh, you know, put on the board and, and the owner's son is going to get that job to go install. And I'd get a kick out of that, right? The, the family member, you know, the son is, is, is going to get hosed on this really tough job. And uh, ironically now, he's my boss. So so, you know, the dynamic there was just pretty cool. But, uh, you know, the, that's the kind of uh, relationship we've had. We still joke about that. Uh, you know, he'd come back from a long day, and I knew exactly where he was because that's where I was yesterday. And I was in there for 10 minutes. He was in there for eight hours in that tight space and working, right, because he was installing the equipment that I was selling. And so I, ha- I held the, the more prestigious job, and, and, uh, yeah, and now, he, now he tells me what to do. So it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. That is pretty funny. But still, I like, can incredible. Incredible. It must feel wonderful to be a part of an organization for 20 years. That's, that's wonderful. Um, yep. So I know we, we did a little deviation here on how to take a company from first generation leadership to second generation leadership, which is fascinating. But let's talk about sales. Okay. Because you started off, you kind of did a little bit of everything when you jumped into the trade, you were business focused. And you mentioned, I believe that you started doing sales at that first company you were at. And that's what you were looking to do when you moved to FH Fur. So talk to me about what differentiates you as a sales, as a comfort advisor. Okay. So just to give you a little background, so I did start at FH Fur in outside sales. I didn't have any previous outside sales experience. So my first day on the job, you know, was a price book and a vehicle and, uh, and an appointment. But what for me in sales, and, and, I, and I was, and I was uh, fairly successful, uh, you know, I'm fairly humble when it comes to that, but uh, I, I, did, I did well financially in, in, in sales, and I certainly did well as far as conversion, average ticket, and just I really, what differentiates me? I can't tell you that it's any secret sauce or any special training because it wasn't. But what it was is I had, a, I had a passion. I had a passion for going in and doing what no other consultants could do. I studied really hard. We didn't have YouTube when I started, so that was not one of my resources. But I certainly met at a lot of jobs. I watched a lot of installations. I did a lot of the things that the other consultants weren't doing, not only at FHFIR, but in other companies. I really wanted to understand it, not, not just you know, the equipment. I want to understand how, how the whole network comes together in a home. What was behind the walls? How does airflow get impacted by certain designs? Things of that nature, which really gave me a leg up. I had a lot of passion. I wanted to solve problems. You know, you had a, you, you had a bedroom that wasn't cooling well. You had humidity issues. You, you had infiltration or, or filtration problems. Whatever they were, I wanted to be the one-stop shop. I wanted to be the guy that could come in, listen to your, your concerns, your needs, your wants, and really address and customize something for you and help you solve your problems. And I, I took passion to it, and, and I didn't realize it in the beginning but I just enjoyed it so much. I, I, I like being around people, so that was the easy part. But getting in there and actually solving problems differentiated me. And, and at a time where people were just doing cookie-cutter kind of installs, they still do, I was upping my game and, and really taking the time to do it. But what differentiated me was my work ethic. I was willing to put in the extra time. I was willing to do things other people weren't willing to do. I was willing to, if a customer needed some reassurance, I was willing to stay as long as needed to reassure them. I would be willing to, to get into any tight space. I was willing to go anywhere and do any do it anyway, drive any time, come back on Saturday nights, Sundays to, to meet. So I just worked really hard at helping people. And uh, through, through helping our customers, I just found sales just started pouring in. I was never chasing the money. At the time, I really didn't have a lot of expenses. And I was making more money than, than all of my, my, my friends that were graduating out of college. You know, I was making more money than, all, than basically every friend I had that were doing it legally. <laughs> so uh, so it, was just, it was just an amazing ride. But 
it's it's really just the pay, paying attention to detail. I never looked at it as, as selling anybody anything. I looked at it as me helping them and, and through helping people and, and really enjoying it. I mean, I think my customers felt that I actually enjoyed my job. And quite frankly, whether they did business with me or not was not my end goal. I mean, naturally, I want them to go with me. But if they didn't, if I even felt like I helped them make a decision to go with somebody else, somehow that was fulfilling. Where a lot of people would take that very personal. I was just like, okay, well, not everyone's going to want to do business with me in my company. But if I helped you make a better decision going with somebody else, I've still done my job. You know, I consider myself a consultant. So, you know, as a consultant, sometimes you get paid, sometimes you don't. And, uh, you know, at the end game, if you do it well, you, you should get paid more often than, than you don't get paid. And so I, I treated myself as an employee out there that, w- that did that. I loved the company. I loved the passion of the company. So my, my story about the company and how I felt about the company was very, very, uh, very strong and very personal. And uh, I just went out there and, and, and did my thing. And I was really proud and I was very competitive. I didn't realize how competitive I was because I was never good at any sports. So although I wanted to be competitive Same. in sports, I, I struggled. I struggled. I was a sideline kind of guy. So, you know, a bench warmer. So I wanted to be competitive. And as we grew and more salespeople came in, I mean, even to the point where if I took vacation, when I took vacation, which was rare, and it was a week, I would take four days out of one month and three out of the next planned so I could, I could be the number one salesperson in both months and not risk taking a whole week or 10 days off in a single month because it may be hard for me to compete with 20 days out of the month with someone that's there the whole month. So, and quite frankly, my most impressive accomplishment through all of this, as I humbly say it, I was the number one sales guy here for, for 120 straight months. You know, I never Dang. took time off for being sick. And I planned around everything, and I worked my tail off to make sure nobody ever beat me in a calendar month. So I'm very proud of that, and uh, I just used my tools. If you, if you had knowledge, if you, if you had a tool that I could use to get better, I adopted that tool, and I made it my own. And, I, and, and, and that's one thing I learned very early, and I'll tell you what did it. In my second year, I was already doing pretty well, but I really didn't take off until I went to the seminar. And uh, there was an individual there, and it wasn't even the, the conference speaker. It was a, a, someone from the crowd that had called up to speak. And uh, they were very successful, and it was a different industry. But they said something that resonated with me. You know, and they're talking to the egos of salesmen. They're like, you know, you're a salesman. You, know, you make a sale, and uh, you automatically pat yourself on the back and run, man, I killed it. I did a great job. I closed that deal, right? But as soon as you don't make a sale, your first inclination is to say, wow, you know, I wish the uh, husband was there. I wish the wife was there. It's a one-legged. I couldn't close it. They don't have the money. You know, oh, she's got to talk to her husband. He's got to talk to his wife. Whatever the reason, it's always an excuse as to why you didn't sell it. And, and, and then he said what resonated with me for the rest of my life until this day. I still teach uh, people this in my trainings with, my, my, with our consultants today. He said, if, if you just change your philosophy on that and, and make it an effort, whether you believe it or not, because eventually you will believe it. So just start by not believing it if, if your ego doesn't allow you to. But come out of every call, sit down that you didn't sell. Sit down in your car and ask yourself, was there somebody in this world, not in the United States, not in your state, not in your city, in this world, that could have closed that deal tonight with that customer? Is there one person in the world that could have done it? Yes or no? And he goes, if you, if you just say yes every single time, which maybe you don't believe that in the beginning, that you're the best in the world. Okay, if you really believe that, that's one thing. But if you say to yourself, there is somebody out there somewhere that could have closed this tonight, just not me, just not today, that opens you up to the fact that you could have done something better. And by opening yourself up to doing something better, even if it's incrementally a very small thing, maybe you could approach, maybe you could have answered a question a little bit better, maybe you could have adjusted your tone, maybe you could have changed your mannerisms, maybe you could have not been so lazy and decided to come back and meet with, with them again, whatever the reasons are, if there was somebody out there in the world that could have closed that deal today, and you believe that, yes, there's at least one person in the world, one person maybe in the world that could have done it, that could have closed this, just by saying that opens you up to also tell yourself indirectly, hey, I need to get better. I need to work on something. Because the minute you come out and you say, oh, it was a condition, they don't have the money, it was the wife wasn't there, the husband wasn't there, they got to think about it, they got to pray on it, you know, they're, they're moving in three months. What did you learn exactly? You learned nothing except the fact that you failed and it's not your fault. There's no room for growth. You will not get better. You will do the same thing again and again and again. That lesson that day led me to look for more ways to improve myself, ride with other people, even though I was riding for free because I was on commission, ride along 
along with people that were maybe better in one facet of, of their presentation. And I just incrementally just grew and just grew and just got better and better and left all the competition behind. And if there's any advice I give the guys at my company is to never stop learning, never stop growing, never think that you're the best at anything. And when you think you got it all and you think you know it all, you know nothing. Start all over again and, and, do, it, and do it over. And I, I do that every day in my life now, and I certainly do that throughout the organization. And everyone knows that about me. When you ask me, am I great at anything? No, I'm not. I'm good at a few things, and I'm working at getting great in a lot of things, and I'll be working till the day I die on those exact same things. Dang. I mean, that's, you totally just described the, like a growth versus a static mindset, not so much static in that, you know, excuses, but, you know, always looking for ways you can grow, always be learning. And like, I can imagine that is just such a, that is such a key thing for comfort advisors to, to be striving toward as they're looking to close estimates within their business. So it sounds like you totally had a competitive nature. You wanted to succeed. You had no doubt, a lot of determination, a lot of a great work ethic, a lot of drive. How do you take, because I know you eventually, before you became chief operating officer, you were head of sales at uh, FH Fur before, correct? Yes, yes. So how do you then take a lot of those qualities that were intrinsic to you and essentially pass them on to other comfort advisors that now report to you. So how do you take those and essentially like systemize them to ensure that your team is performing, if not just as effective as you, but better than you? Okay. So, and that's a great question. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So in training with my guys, yes, we do have a a sales sort of system, right? We, we have certain steps that we go through in a home. We strongly encourage everyone to, to own it and to make it their own because you certainly don't want to, want to come about it as a systematic or robotic approach, right? So you, you, want, you want to build that relationship in the home with that customer, but you don't want to forget to do certain things because we find them to be important and for the majority applies to the situation. So when I'm talking and we, we'll break it down, but we focus a lot on, on the, I guess you call them the real world situations. A real world situation to me in, in the sales world is opening the door and we get people to open up. What are some objections you face this week? What are some of the things that people said? And this is key. What are some of the things your customers said this week that really got you upset or turned you off? For example, uh, you get to the door, you open the door and say, Hey, Ms. Johnson, my name is Darius. How you doing? She goes, great, great. Hey, Darius, I just want to let you know. I'm getting three more estimates this week. I didn't want you to get any and, and you get, get too excited. What have you? I, I am shopping around. A lot of consultants, their demeanor will change at that moment. Oh, crap, here's another one. Oh, my goodness, I, you know, three more estimates. I'm wasting my time, whatever. We train to do the exact opposite, right? Your initial instinct sometimes will cost you the sale. Your initial response will oftentimes cost you the sale. So you have to learn how to take that initial response, tuck it away, and, 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 and verbalize a different one. So basically what we do is we train, we train on it. We role play it. I'm getting three more estimates. Great. Everybody should get three more estimates. Embrace what they feel you may take in the difference. So you're, you're putting them into a situation where they, they're looking and saying, my goodness, that's, a, that's strange, right? Uh, but certainly not what they thought you were going to react with, right? Certainly you, you, you basically flip that upside down. So we train on, on, on absorbing that because in, in the field of sales, rejection is, is, is something you're going to face on a regular basis. How you respond to that rejection is critical. If you respond to your, your, your rut, your uh, lack of sales, your, your situation, will just last longer and longer and longer. Confidence is critical, right? And maintaining that confidence. So how do you remain confident in the midst of going on an 0-5 streak, two days working for free? How do you do that, right? You know, some people will say, hey, you're that much closer to making the next sale. That's easy to say, but when you're in that grind, it makes it hard. But what can get you through situations like that is saying, stop doing it because you're trying to sell something. If you're trying to sell something, you have no business working at this organization. If you find a way to enjoy what you're doing, and you just go out there and enjoy yourself with every call, good things are going to happen for you. If you're truly out there to help people, you're truly out there because you're enjoying it, you're truly out there to inspire and to believe and to be better than everybody else and raise the, the standards and, 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 and raise your game up to you know, being the best in the business, then you're out there to support, to help, to educate, to establish relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we train our guys to do that. So number one, we train them how to respond to things that are not 
necessarily positive in a presentation role, right? Uh, and there's lots of them. I'm getting estimates. Just to let you know, I'm not making a decision today. I just want to let you know, we don't have the money yet. We're saving up for this, something we're going to do in six months. My goodness, these are these are death stabs in the world. You walk in and, and that just kills most people. We train our, our consultants, hey, recognize that the majority of people say these things, not because they're necessarily real circumstances, but because they're protecting themselves from making a decision that they otherwise may regret. It's, it's a smoke screen. It's, it's potentially a buyer's remorse move, right? So understand that that's just the way the world works. Don't take the, the, the words for what they are. They don't even know you yet, right? And quite frankly, if, you're, if your agenda was to make a sale and they're telling you that, yes, you're hurt. Don't go in there with the agenda to make the sale. Go in there with the agenda to help the customer. And if the sale comes out of it, that's a bonus, right? Change your mindset. Go in with that mindset. So we, we, we structure on that. We focus on mindset. We focus on what, how to react to certain smoke screens that may come up and, and to be really good at it. Because if you don't, you're going to lose a sale just like that. So the customer senses desperation like a dog does. Dog senses fear, they react on it. A horse senses your fear, you're in big trouble getting on its back, right? So we kind of use analogies like that. But the bottom line is, is, is this. We focus in on real situations. We talk about real situations that are going on, and then we talk about what, we, what others have done in the room, and we share constantly that to, to do to overcome that. And then we role play, we practice, we practice, we practice at getting better. Yes, we practice sometime on the actual uh, um, system that we have, you know, our sales process, but that's just the shell of everything, right? The, re the reality is sales is, is about building chemistry. It's about relating. It's about trust. It's about honesty. It's all these things. And we focus on those, those values going into the house. So we, we, we win more sales because of, of our customers understanding that we, do, we truly do care and by spending the time necessary to, to build that relationship. And quite frankly, it works for us, maybe not for, for everybody else, but certainly certainly does for us. No, I mean, I could see 100% why it would work. Uh, you're essentially training your comfort advisors to one, practice empathy and be mindful of what their homeowner, what their customers are potentially going through. You're bringing attention to the fact that there is a lot of buyer's remorse in your presentation at our original user conference that at the time was named Dispatch, but now has been rebranded to Pantheon. You mentioned how sometimes your comfort advisors give numbers that uh, give prices that are thousands of dollars when they were expecting to spend a hundred dollars. So you're essentially yeah. training your techs to kind of work with that change in emotions, that shift in that guard in real time. And what I also really love is that you guys are, you're training them to subvert expectations. So when they get that thing that says, when they get that customer that says, we're looking at three estimates right now just so you know instead of them going like oh they're like oh great which is again it totally as a customer now i'm like oh phew i was worried that he would be upset that i'm talking to other companies but now yeah. we've just established trust because he has demonstrated in that one attitude shift that he is invested in the way in in my well-being and, and what's best for me absolutely uh, so now you've already put yourself a leg over the competition so i think it totally makes sense it's totally mm -hmm. smart and any company of any size could effectively utilize this strategy when training their either their techs who are selling or their comfort advisors if they have them. Yeah, I find most companies continue to focus on, on textbook items, you know, basically process, 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 but they don't spend enough time on mindset and real world interaction, right? Communication things, right? Where, where you take the time to listen to one's needs, really customize and, and reflect on that and really do the things and recommend the things that you believe will help that customer and gaining the customer's permission to do so. And uh, we spent a lot of time on that part of it. And, you know, hey, you're right that it works with, with, with our company. And Every single time we go into a no-sale situation and, and we, we, we discuss what the objection was or why the customer said they didn't want to do it or, or any of that, we peel that back, peel that back, and then we address it as a community. We address it as a group. What could we have done better? Because we all believe that our customer could benefit from our services, right? We never recommend anything that we don't believe our, that would benefit our customer or be good for them. So hence, we're trying to service all of our customers because we don't recommend things or shouldn't be recommending things that, that don't benefit or would help them. So 
that's the philosophy we take. And we, we, we certainly try to filter it. And some people do it better than others. I certainly, for me, the credibility comes because they, the majority of them know that I was in the field. So I, I've been in the trenches and they know that I was successful being in the trenches, right? So that helps my credibility and, and makes it easier for me than it would be for maybe somebody coming in, trying to train it. Well, you haven't been there. So you have other things that you have to overcome when doing that. But every chance I get, because I love sales so much, I jump in the in, in those rooms and, and I partake in, in you know, listening to what they're saying and, and is there anything I can help and taking someone that's coming in and, and helping mentor them and helping show accelerate their careers by months and years ahead of the of where they would be if they didn't have that training or that knowledge or that person in their life that might really want to see them succeed gives me fulfillment and uh, I think they they recognize that to some degree and, and that certainly helps my situation. Hundred percent. So I mentioned in my last little and the last time I spoke about how you presented at the very first Service Titan User Conference and you presented on financing. And prior to when I started recording, you mentioned how financing is really one of your specialties. So I would love to give you the floor and talk to me a little bit about your financing philosophy. How do you do it at FH Fur? What are some of the best tips and strategies that you can pass on to fellow contractors who are listening to this right now? Okay, yeah. So over time, and, and this is starts, you know, years ago when, when I was in the field, and uh, naturally, like anybody would have, I, I, I had the challenge of, of the number one stated objection in the world, which is your price is too high, right? And you face that enough times, and you start looking for tools to overcome that objection, because oftentimes, yeah, what, what does that mean? It really doesn't mean anything except uh, you don't want to do business with me right now. I mean, that's really how I took it. But the reality is that is the objection, right, is, is, is your price is too high. That's probably the number Number one objection that I heard when I was in the field, and I believe that is till this day still number one. So whether it's real or not. So what early on in my career I, I learned, okay, there, there's a tool here that two things have to happen for a sale to, to be made. And I mentioned that at, at, at the discussion, and I believe that in sales in, in, in any capacity. Your customer has to be willing and your customer has to be able. If someone's willing and able uh, to, to uh, take on your service or your product, a sale can happen. But if any, either one of those missing, uh, nothing happens, right? If they're not willing but able or they're able but not willing, there's nothing. So really, if you break it down, those are the only two things you have to really concern yourself with. So how could I put myself in a position where I make majority, I mean, it's never 100%, but the majority of my customers able to, to have what I want to offer, right? What I'm offering. Well, financing does that, right? Promotional payments does that. So that's one tool that I adopted very early in my career that just took off. I mean, we're talking, my sales went up 40-50% once I started to utilize promotional payments now, promotional payments may take maybe a low payment to meet a budget. It could be a low interest payment, which in, in, in the consumer's eyes, if I can borrow money at that rate, that's, I'm good with that. I'll, I'll do it. Or it could be a no interest plan where they've got money, but the leverage of, of balancing that for a year, two years, five years, what have you, with no interest, that's appealing to me. I'll do it. In any of those three situations, I'm game and I, and I do educate. There's three types of buyers. There's a low interest buyer, there's a low payment buyer, and there's a no interest buyer. But almost everybody is a finance buyer to some degree or a promotional payment buyer. It's just a matter of which one of the three they are. Now, granted, what struck me or where I really learned it, so, that, so that's all about payments. But what really, really came down to me identifying and embracing was, wait a minute, you know, first impression is everything. As soon as you hear something, you start having thoughts about whatever it is that you're hearing. As soon as you see something, you start having thoughts about what you're seeing. You start having senses that, uh, that will take place. So what I realized was, is when I started presenting on payments, no different than some of the, you know, have a cup of coffee for less than a dollar a day or what have you, those things you think, oh, that's kind of funny, whatever. But guess what? That is more appealing to me than, than a higher number, right? Smaller numbers are better numbers. So once I started going in and saying, okay, we could do this, 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 and this, we can take care of that. And we could, we could do all of that. And it's $79 a month. Now, immediately, my consumer is in a position where they can afford it. They may not want it yet, right? They may not want it, but certainly they're in the game. They can afford it. Have I, if I had the same exact thing, I could do this, do this, and solve that, and do that, but it's going to be $10,722, the immediate reaction might be, whoa, 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 slow down here. Uh, that's a lot more than I was thinking. 
why would I create my own objection to that first impression, like that first? Uh, they're both the same thing, in essence, because obviously you're going you're to outline all the terms and you're going to be clear about all of that. But truly, they can have your full investment of everything that you've got for $79 a month, or they can pay up front and pay $10,700. Whichever one of that is, in, in essence, you're just giving the customer the options, and then you're letting your customer decide what is best for them. But if I present it at the $79, right, they're more inclined to receive the information that I'm providing and maybe even say, tell me more. They may not want to do it yet, but tell me more. 10700 tell me less, right? And uh, creating your own objection to, to your own price. So as soon as we started incorporating uh, uh, payments into or promotional payments into our, our, our presentation, all of a sudden, average ticket soar, conversion soars. You're offering something that maybe other companies aren't offering. It's an additional tool. You're giving them flexibility to, ha- to enjoy the benefits of having a new system. Or, you know, in our world, we do plumbing, we do electrical, what have you, to enjoy our services and not experience the pain of having to come out of pocket. All- because no one plans for these things, right? Very few people say, I'm saving up $10,000 to buy a new air conditioner next year. Really? No, it happens, right? So it's not a planned purchase. So if you're not, we're in the business of, of non-planned purchases, so they're not saving up for an addition or a remodeling project. We're dealing with reactive buyers in most, in most cases. And in, in essence, we want to make our product service as affordable as we possibly can. We practice on presenting on payments, but oft, oftentimes they'll be like, no, that's okay. I, won't, I, I, I don't need the, I'm not going to utilize the uh, payments. I'm just going to use my American Express because I want to get my points. That's okay. And I train my guys, hey, you know, the bottom line is this. You kept them interested with the payment. You truthfully could do the job at that rate. We don't, we don't present the rate that we can't provide that, the customer with. It's everyone's decision to make as far as you know, whether or not they want to take advantage of, that, of the promotion. A lot of people love the no interest. Why not, right? They're leveraging their money, and they, they can leave it where it is or, or, or let it grow where it is or whatever they're doing uh, or have, just have the flexibility of not having to come off the money and the pain of coming off of it today. So. We utilize that, and, and, and over the last few years, we've taken that to a whole new dimension. We've, we've involved it with, with all services, all the way down to a, a $20 purchase. So you can buy anything at FHFER with promotional payments. We could put any purchase on 12-month, no interest, no payments. No payments, no interest for a year, no additional cost to you. And, we, and we've adopted that through the right. We're one of the very few companies that have gone to that length. But I can tell you, average tickets soaring throughout the company, we're, we're one of the only companies in the area, maybe not after this podcast, but one of the only companies in the area that will go to, go to market with uh, promotional payments on all services, all sales, all sizes. We're trying to make it possible for every customer to do business with us in every situation. And that just gets us one step closer to making that happen, filling the able void. So now all we have to focus in on is the willing. Are you willing to do business with me and FHFER, right? Filling the able void on every job, taking it to willing, and it's, it's helping boost sales throughout the organization. That's incredible. I love that you can essentially put promotions on literally every cost. And yeah, I imagine that not a lot of businesses are actually doing that right now, but it it does exactly what you said it does. It takes away that barrier. It takes away that initial sticker shock. And it makes, because I mean, you just said it, you said it perfectly. We're all of our customers are going to be reactive. They're not planning to buy an air conditioner. It sucks. I'm not a homeowner, but it sucks when I have to, you know, pay to get my battery swapped out of my car or get my transmission fixed. Like I don't ever want to pay that. So whenever something, so if it's offered to me in a micro in like in micro chunks that I can pay off and that's so much more appealing. It's like, okay, this isn't as inconvenient as it was. So essentially with financing, you are removing those barrier, those barriers for your comfort advisor in all capacity. And technicians. And technicians. Do it throughout the whole company. Yeah. Yeah. So you have your technician selling in addition to, how do you guys have your technician comfort advisor uh, relationship set up right now? Well, our technicians uh, turn over opportunities. They don't, we don't have selling technicians on, you know, equipment-wise, right? But uh, we do have a whole program set up, and we do have it separated to where certain technicians run certain types of calls to increase probability of, of identifying opportunities and then turning them over into the sales department. But all... Uh, employees at all levels can 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 offer our services utilizing payments. 
So that's streamlined across the company. But yes, our comfort advisors are the only ones that sell equipment, but everybody can utilize financing. And that's, that, that's what uh, very few, if it, I don't know any other companies that do it the way that we do it, but some, after speaking with me and, and me working with them, I'm trying to get our industry up to speed in, in terms of this, because our industry is lacking in utilizing some of the available tools out there outside. You know, you go to some of the other home improvement industries, and they've been using, utilizing financing for, you know, 20, 30 years. And really just the last decade, our, our, our industry really took off with it. And we're in the infancy of this and recognizing, hey, just because, you know, and, and it's because so many business owners and so many businesses were founded by the technicians themselves, with, which was the owner years back, they didn't adopt it. So now their companies don't adopt. They don't want to embrace that, 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 that technology. Why would anyone finance that? I wouldn't. Why would anybody else? They sell out of their own pockets and it hinders the whole business. I mean, even you go online now and you're buying something even at Amazon and say, oh, do you want three payments of 19.95 instead of paying it in full? Right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere, right? It's just making it possible for people to afford your services and feel less pain. I mean, that's how do you not take advantage of that, right? It's, 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 it's a world of opportunity. Yeah, maybe because you're looking at the cost. You know, maybe you're, that's a little short-sighted, right? If you make your services more affordable and your revenue goes up, you can absorb more costs. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, you've got an overhead allocation. You've you got to hit that number, and anything above that is, is into your gross margin. And you build your company accordingly, and, and you embrace these things. These are, these are tools in our world, you know, being the United States, we you know the number one country for utilizing credit by by a long shot, right? You're in the number one country that utilizes credit, and you don't offer credit. It's insane, you know that 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 you don't do that. But hey, there are companies that will, and hopefully, like I said, if anything, I hope my competitors don't, because the longer they don't, the the the, the more I have a, a competitive advantage at at uh, at beating them out on the street. So that's always a good thing. Totally. I mean, that was actually something I wanted to touch upon. I can imagine that for shops of varying sizes, offering financing can feel very intimidating because it's you're doing exactly what you said. You're taking on a cost, but then you just said it gives opportunity. And with when you take a risk, when you there's great opportunity, you get a reward. And the more your revenue sure. goes up, the more cost you can absorb. So I think that's yeah. a good kind of lesson for people to take away if now they've, they're they thinking about financing after your wonderful convincing. I mean, I want to offer financing. I don't even have a service shop. So you convinced right. me. I'm Thank sure you. you've convinced a couple of people. So we're almost at an hour and I just want to ask a couple questions. First and foremost, sure. I'm, I'm making this wonderful, wonderful discovery as I go through these interviews that tradesmen and women absolutely love reading books. And you seem like someone who probably also likes reading books. So I'm curious if you have any book recommendations for your fellow contractors who may want to know more information about selling, more, more information about how to run operations or anything that you used in your career to kind of get the knowledge Ooh. you have now. Used to be a lot of books. Now I still do audio books, but a lot of a lot of YouTube. But you know, starting with the why, I'm sure is one of my favorites. I resort to it on a regular basis. Simon Sinek is is just an amazing, uh, intelligent person that really understands the fundamentals of business and basically positioning your business to be more recession-proof, sort of speak. So um, I would highly suggest starting with the why. You know, whether you watch the, the the videos or or you buy the audio book or what have you, it's a great publishing as far as that kind of selling. I I always resort back to the, the first sales books and, you know, advanced selling. Brian Tracy was one of my favorites, down to earth, very simple to to follow for anyone that's starting in sales. I mean, there's so many resources on YouTube now that uh, that, that you, you can resort to. You mentioned Weldon Long earlier, right? And I've watched a lot of Weldon Long videos, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in my sales career and certainly over the last uh, five to six years as, uh, as he's really progressed and really reached out to the market. But, you know, my other books are, you know, Five, you know, the habits of uh, five habits of success. Uh, uh, level, sorry, five levels of leadership. You know, these type of books I definitely read um, on a regular basis. But starting with the why, if there's one book in the world, that's my book. That's my go-to. Yeah. yeah, and his TED Talk is very good for anyone who doesn't want to yeah. invest in the book. Simon Kinnick, uh, start with the why. Finally. I would love to know what advice, so you, you've been with FH for, again, from 65 to 330 employees. Would you mind sharing uh, what your revenue was like last year, if you don't mind? Yeah, uh, last, year, last year was uh, 66, 66 million last 66 year. And our projected this year will be million. around 75. Yes. That's incredible. 
So you guys are, you guys are huge. You're at a very, you're at an enterprise level shop. I would love to know what advice you would give to folks who are on the smaller side, who are maybe just getting started or are kind of ramping up with like six to 10 techs. And then what advice would you give to shops that are approaching the size that FHFIR is now? So two different pieces of advice for different sized businesses. And, and it's good that you put it that way because they are very different uh, as to what you focus on at the different sizes. And, you know, six to 10 is a very difficult size because it's typical the, the, the owner or owners are very involved in the day-to-day operations and everyone's wearing 17 hats in that operation. The only thing I could say to a, to a six to 10 uh, a shop is as far as what will get you growing faster than, any, than, than anything else is to separate yourself from getting in the weeds. All too often, you're going to stay at the same place and, or, or inhibit your growth because you're not in it empowering, you're not trusting, you're not, you're not putting people in the right positions. And at that size, that is absolutely critical that you start to separate yourself from being a technician, from being the salesman, from being the designer, from being the, uh, the phone answer, and all of the different positions within the company. You know, the, the faster that you pull yourself out and put belief into people, the, the better you're going to be and the faster you're going to get to where you're trying to go. And that's for the smaller company. For the larger company, it's all about getting the right people in the right roles. It's all about transparency of numbers. It's all about setting your goals, making sure everybody knows them, making sure that everybody sees them on a regular basis, whether it's in your huddles, during your weekly meetings. Transparency is critical that everybody knows everybody's numbers and who's responsible for every number in your company. And then holding those that aren't achieving their numbers accountable. Excuses are not accepted and should never be accepted. So as long as you, you you have that level of accountability to the goals. Everything has to have a goal. Everything has to have a metrics in which to, to measure that goal. And everyone's got to have a role and a responsibility. And as long as you clearly outline all of that, going from 50 million to 60 million to 70, I mean, four years ago, four years ago, we were 37 million. We were at 37 million, between 32 and 37 million for almost eight years, where we couldn't break through that next line. So I understand what it's like to get stuck because you're not making the right decisions, you're not holding the right accountability, you're not setting the right goals, you're not doing, you're not putting, more importantly, a plan to achieve the goals. At at some point in every business's timeline, you set goals, but you neglect to set the right plans to achieve the goals. And then you wonder why you're not achieving the goals, and you want to blame people. Then there's resentment, and then there's fallout, and then you're now you're stuck in a rut because now you got new people, you can't get ahead, and you're going around in circles. If you set goals, set a plan to achieve them, execute on the plans and hold accountability to those executions, continue to, 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 to move forward. Four years ago, we were 37 million. We were there for eight years. And in four years, we've grown over $30 million from there. In four years, we've grown 80% in this company and we're trajectorying to be 100% growth in, in five years at the end of this year. We will have grown 100%. And it's not 100% from 500,000 to, to 1 million. It's 100% from 37 million to 75, 77 million, where we're going to be. And that is in itself a huge accomplishment for us. We were, we were in one place for a very long time and it's painful to watch. You know, your, your revenue stays the same, but your overhead keeps climbing up. Your margins keep shrinking. If you don't keep moving forward, you're definitely going to be moving backwards. So we're very proud of, of, of what it is, but I can tell you it's come because we've gotten clear direction. We set goals that are real, realistic and attainable. We set plans on how we're going to get there. We don't ever set a goal without a different plan to achieve it. We'll never set a goal to say we're going to grow 10% in a department, but we're going to leave everything in the department the same. What exactly is changing in that department to grow 10%? And it better not be we're just going to get more leads. No, we're going to change how we, we, we go to market with our consultants. We're going to hold accountability. We're going to replace somebody. We're going to initiate these new guidelines. We're going to create these incentives. Whatever that may be, have a plan that you all agree to, especially the person that's going to own that, and then execute the plan. Forget about the goal, because if you execute the plan, the goal will come as long as your plan was fundamental. So don't chase the number, execute on the processes, and follow the plan. If you don't have a plan, there's your problem. So we found that we had goals. Every year we were goaling back four years ago and eight years before that. We were setting goals to grow, but no 
plan other than the fact that we were going to grow. Uh, you, you know, what exactly are you going to do to do that? I mean, that's, you know, the, the definition of insanity, right? Uh, you, you're saying you're going to get some different results, but you're not willing to do anything different. But it's more than just saying you're going to do anything different. It's actually laying it out in writing. It's actually laying it out by, by this first quarter, this will be done. By second quarter, this will be done. By third quarter, the plan for, it has deadlines at every step of the way. And we found when you do that and you lay that out and everyone understands what the plan is and everyone knows what the goals are, the sky's the limit. And not everyone's going to like it. Don't get me wrong, but this is where the bus is going. And you either get on or you don't, right? So get on the bus. That's where, where we've been. And, and for right now, this bus is moving, and we're going to enjoy the ride as long as the ride goes. <laughs> we may be about to crash <laughs> on a beach, but we're riding, right? And, it's, and, and, and we're going to enjoy it while we're going. Yeah. Uh, you, you crash on a beach, but there will be like uh, Mai Tais and um, a pig roast. Totally bringing us drinks better. and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> go parasailing and everything else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great yeah. beach. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, I think that's wonderful advice. Thank you for that. Is there anything yeah. that we should have talked about that we didn't? I mean, one, one, one of the things for that small business, certainly, because as you get into big business, you start recognizing this. Separating your personal feelings from the business becomes very hard. As a small business, you feel like you have to be loyal to everybody. And trust me, that loyalty can end up running you right into the ground. That loyalty to keep people that shouldn't be there, that loyalty to, to keep people doing things that they shouldn't be doing. In small business, I found as we were growing, the first few years were really tough because hard decisions are really hard to do. If you feel, you have to ask yourself who you're loyal to. If you're loyal to an individual and you're sinking the, and making it harder for the eight other people around you, where does your loyalty stand? You really have to evaluate that. And I know in small business, it's, it's, it's very hard and, and, it's, and it's hard even at our level. Your loyalty needs to be to, the, to, to, to your whole family, and the whole family being your whole organization. And that's where we've, we've held it, and a lot of hard decisions have had to be made here at FHFIR. And uh, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever had to be a part of, because naturally I don't like delivering bad news, and I certainly don't like to bring n anything negative to anybody's life. But making those hard decisions is, 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 is a key component to having success. If you're holding on to people in the wrong positions and holding on to processes that are in place because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, you're really doing a detriment to everybody in your organization. And I had written that one down because in my first couple of years doing what I'm doing in, in my current position, that was one of the hardest things for me. Not that I wouldn't do it, but it was just hard to do. And a lot of things, when you recognize them, you say, oh, this happened. But then you also say in the same breath, that should have happened years ago. And if you find yourself saying that it should have happened years ago all too often, take action and take it fast because you're hurting, your, you're hurting the company from proceeding and, 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 and moving forward. So that would be one of my things with family business, it's just, it's something that's even embedded even more than any other, uh, you know, non-family business, because at least then it's not personal, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, thank you for saying that. I think I totally agree. And I, I could understand why it would be hard for you because you want to help people. That is like your core. That's your North Star as it. a human being. It's our vision, so, you know, yeah. so helping can, people is our vision. So the last thing you want to do is have to make a tough decision or have to make something that may hurt someone else for the benefit of other people. It's hard to be a leader yeah. and it's hard to run a business, which is why I'm starting this podcast so people can learn from experts like you. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate it, Darius. This was a wonderful conversation that totally flew by for me and I appreciate your insights. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. No, much appreciated. The grit and know-how required to tackle your community's toughest jobs hasn't changed, but the way companies run their business has. Service Titan is the only field service software that was born in the trades, built for the trades. If you're interested in seeing what Service Titan can do for your business, request a demo at servicetitan.com trades, and we'll send you a new Milwaukee tool set, plus a free iPad when you sign up. That's servicetitan.com trades. You've been listening to Toolbox for the Trades, presented by Service Titan, the leading home and commercial field service software. Please subscribe to Toolbox for the Trades wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out servicetitan.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening.